Ho, ho, ho. And welcome to Jaffa Cakes for Proust. This is another in our seasonal series, in which myself, Gary, and yourself, Mr. Tilteraisa, look at all manner of Christmassy items. And what is more Christmassy, and includes more items for that matter, than Christmas Night with the Stars? I should just point it at this stage, by the way, because we sometimes do further reading at the end, but I'll throw it in just now, because we're just going to be talking about like the three that we've seen and what have you. But if you want a nice, proper, in-depth history on this, then Google Christmas Night with the Stars bit, and you'll find Boggan Strovia's bit blog, our own Boggan Strovia from the Sitcom Club. Now, he wrote about this a couple of years ago, and he's got a lovely long blog post that tells you all about the development of the show itself, about the people involved in it, the producers, the ITV version, All-Star Comedy Carnival. And what have you. So, yeah, have a wee look at that once you're done listening to ourselves. We're going to focus our attention on three shows from the golden years. We're not going to be looking at 1994. I just remember that by reputation. I know I watched it at the time and thought, ho hum. And then afterwards, it really upset a lot of people, didn't it? Yes, it did. Yes. Funnily enough, this was something you used to get occasionally with some of Dennis Norton's shows on LWT, the ones that weren't outtakes. Things like say Laughterfly and so on, every once in a while he would put together a compilation of, for example, the 40th anniversary of ITV. There was a really nice little three-part series and it was full of comedy clips from ITV. One of them was just about sitcoms and the other two was like variety acts and stand-up and so on. That had a funny mix because you could go from, say, Tommy Cooper in one clip and then immediately switch to, say, a double act on Saturday Live on Channel 4. Then you've got Dickie Henderson, and the next minute you've got Girls on Top. And it was a sort of uneasy sort of balance being struck with all those. And Christmas Night with the Stars was a real oddity because you had, if I remember correctly, I've not seen it since it went out at the time, but that had, it was Fran Laurie who hosted it. You had little sort of compendium of previous Christmas Night with the Stars bits and pieces. And then you just had this succession of BBC Two characters doing whatever they've been doing on BBC Two all year. For example... Can you remember the name of the two French characters that Reeves and Mortimer used to play? Le Corbusier et Papin. Right, so they found a novel way to increase the size of their turkey, for example. I remember that quite succinctly. There was a sneer. There was definitely a sneer in Fry and Laurie's presentation, as I recall. It was about 50 years ago now. So that was it. There was this faint feeling that they'd taken a beloved brand name and gone, <laughs> all of us are so damned clever. And so much better than this. And they probably didn't think that. I'm not necessarily accusing them, every single act who was on this thing, of actually being quite so mean-spirited and mean-minded. But they gave that impression using a name that had previously indicated variety fun for all the family. I know it was on BBC too, but that was the feeling I got. A lot of the letters of complaint with people who had tuned in in the hope of getting a new equivalent of what had gone before. Subsequent to that, we've had an attempt to again bring back the format in 2003, and that was much more traditional, but at the same time modern. So it was hosted by Michael Parkinson, and it had a load of 2003 celebrities on it and doing all their bits and pieces and what have you. But it didn't catch on, it didn't stick. I suspect that possibly one reason for that is that a big part of Christmas Night with the Stars are the little mini sitcom episodes. And of course, by 2003, and let's face it, by 1973 for that matter, you've really got to the point where those sitcoms have their own Christmas specials. Christmas Night with the Stars that doesn't have any little mini sitcom episodes in it is really just a regular sort of variety show. So there's not really the sort of special element to it. But that's what we're going to talk about today anyway. So there's three of them that still exist in the BBC archive. is 1958, 1964 and 1972. 58 is the first, 72 is the last. We did these in linear order. We started with 58 and I found this rather charming. I found this quite quaint and it was David Nixon who was our master of ceremonies as he was billed. Wasn't David Nixon a lovely guy? He was. Really great presentation style. Very much of the guest-in-your-home style of doing things. I suppose, just thinking about Paul Daniels, Paul Daniels is something of a reaction. Not against that, but a contrast to his style. I think it's our friend Louis Barth who said that he thinks one of the reasons that Paul Daniels fell from 
favour is a lack of humility. Paul Daniels is great. He's a great magician, but he knows he's a great magician and he lets on that he knows. But I imagine that's also one of the things that managed to make him big. It's not so much that people might have been sick of David Nixon, but Paul Daniels wasn't David Nixon. He was un-David Nixon-like. So Christmas Night with the Stars, 1958, the first thing that strikes me, and it's not an impression that less, was how American it looked. Why does it look American? Okay, I'm going to come up with a potentially ridiculous theory here. One is, when you sit there about David Nixon, he's like the guest in your home. Now, bear in mind where we are here. So we've had television for 22 years by this point, but only since 46 has it been uninterrupted. I think there's still perhaps a little bit of an element. It's not going to be at the forefront anymore, but there's still a little bit of an element of, you know, you've got to be sort of careful what you're bringing into people's homes. You don't want to do anything that's going to cause offence or anything like that. Another possible reason why it's so sort of glitzy and it's got all that sort of bonhomie and, and what have you is, of course, ITV. By this point, it's been around three years. And they're taking up a huge chunk of BBC's audience. So I suspect that that's probably part of the reason why, that rather than it being a sort of a... Because if this had been a BBC sort of shindig in the early 1950s, I think it would be more low-key. It would perhaps be something akin to like a sort of Hogmanay party where all the turns are in the same studio and they're all doing a little bit and piece and what have you. And it's all sort of rather sort of polite. It's like a sort of county hall type affair. Whereas by this point, BBC needs to respond to ITV and they've got shows like The Palladium on a Sunday night. So I think that's probably part of the reason why they're really going all out for it. All the sections have got their own compartment and what have you. And yeah, it looks like a full-on expensive show bill, albeit with all homegrown talent. That's part of the thing. You can't see the proscenium. Because Sunday night at the London Palladium doesn't feel particularly American. Because Sunday Night at the London Palladium advertises the fact that it's in a variety theatre. Now, Christmas Night with the Stars, as far as we can tell, was made in the television theatre, which is now the Shepherd's Bush Empire. I've been there, been backstage. But the cameras stay within the stage space. It's a good big stage space, so it looks quite spectacular. But it's got that television studio feel. Yes, I guess maybe I expected something like this to look a little bit cheaper. And it's interesting how times change because I sort of associate the TV theatre with things like Stu Francis era Cracker Jack. And whenever you see the audience in that, it actually looks quite small scale. I think that's probably deceptive because it is a proper TV studio, but it doesn't have the same look as Television Centre, which looks cavernous. It's also the kind of acts, the kind of dancers and the kind of singers that we get initially. I don't mean singers as in famous individual singers but the kind of dance troops and singing troops who come on and start off it feels like something britain eventually lost taste for more's a pity what's the word i'm looking for it's not quite smarmy but it's got a certain show busyness that didn't last in british culture british culture eventually became a bit more direct your dance troops are the young generation, those kinds of things. They wear black turtlenecks and flares. <laughs> More of them later. Of course, they'll be making an appearance. Charlie Chester is our first act. I asked you when he turned up, I said, did you ever listen to Charlie Chester on Radio 2? Because you were one of those... I don't know if it would be... Would it be fair to say a minority in your age group at this time? <laughs> where... When you listen to Sing Something Simple on a Sunday afternoon, it wasn't because you tuned in early for the top 40 on VHF. You were actually listening to the Cliff Adams singers and then you'd stick with Radio 2 for Charlie Chester at 5 o'clock. Yes. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Well, actually, no, I didn't. I didn't listen to a great deal of Radio 2 on a Sunday. It was more weekday evenings. My main memory of Charlie Chester is Charlie Chester's Featherbed Fairy Tales, which was an... LP that I had as a child of him reading out fairy tales that had a bit where it skipped that freaked me out. <laughs> I can't remember what particular fairy tale it was. But when the princess looked under the mattress, 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 but when... The under the mattress, but when the... <laughs> <laughs> 
So I was aware that Charlie Chester was a nice old man. There was definitely some enmity between Charlie Chester and Max Miller. You know, I've been listening to some of our old shows. Do you think we don't explain enough? Well, the thing is that, okay, if we introduce a topic, of course, it's like a sort of prompt for further reading, isn't it? So, you know, even if we talk about... Mainly when we started talking about that announcer for UTV and didn't bother to explain. I'm sure everyone is familiar with Julian Simmons. Are they not? Do you think we should explain who Max Miller is? No. Good, okay, fine. Just have little moments of doubt occasionally. Just have a wee peek at something here. Two ticks. It says here that after short engagements as a grocer's errand boy, I'm getting this, by the way, from a website called Hidden Tiger Books, and it's a biography of Charlie Chester. And then as an embroidered firm's messenger, Cecil adopted the stage name Charlie Chester and made a bold attempt to make it in musical. His was not an easy route to success, however, not least owing to his striking resemblance to top comic Max Miller, whose sensing an imitator had him banned from the circuit initially. Ah, Chester that might was be not it. to be dissuaded, however. So in my mind, I had this difficulty trying to put the two together. The nice old man on my fairy tale record and an imitation of Max Miller. And now I've finally seen it. And yes, it's about the first thing. Hang on, that's Max Miller. He's just doing Max Miller's shtick. He's not wearing the outfit, the floral coat and the plus fours and the little hat. He's coming on casually dressed, he's wearing a sweater, he's gesturing a lot with a cigar that makes him look like a shticky comedian. But his whole delivery... Did you laugh at any of his jokes? Um, it wasn't so much laughing at his specific jokes, it was more that he was good with the audience. That I was he getting was, a lot of Arthur Atkinson. <laughs> he, he was good with the audience and he was, in effect, he was sort of, I don't want to downgrade his popularity, but in effect he was sort of like the warm-up man but within the programme. So he was the first guy on the on the show, and he gets everybody in the right mood for the show, including the studio audience and the audience at home and so on, before everything Actually, you know on. what it was? In his jokes, he's the winner. Right. He's talking okay. about how bad he is to his butler. But it's not like Jack Benny and Rochester. It's just kind of like, yeah, I got one over over this loser. Nah. That just seemed to be the air that was hanging over the material for me, so I couldn't warm to him. Yeah, I know what you mean, yes. I mean, is that going back again to Paul Daniels versus David Nixon, for example? I mean, obviously Paul Daniels wasn't doing jokes, but in the same way, it's difficult to warm to a personality if they're not really showing a great deal of humility. I try to be fair. Firmness with fairness. Yes. Oh, no, not even firmness. (laughs) I try not to be unnecessarily unpleasant. The next act up is the Beverly Sisters Hmm? now. No, here's the thing. I can't separate the Beverly sisters' own qualities as themselves from the way I was brought up. I wasn't brought up to vote a certain way. I wasn't brought up to be judgmental of those people. I was brought up that the Beverly sisters were just the most god-awful scourge on entertainment. (laughs) That was pretty much the one thing that my parents really instilled in me so i can't quite separate this inherited prejudice from watching them they might be doing a great job but i had already learned that the beverly sisters coming on tv caused the temperature in the room to drop by six degrees so i'm going to have to ask you to review the beverly sisters oh boy i think at one point i said did i not say to yourself are the beverly sisters sexy are they the height of eroticism in 1958? I don't if, think that's their job, if, no. if they are, then they're hiding it bloody well. But no. Okay. Oh, no, 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 come no, on. Nothing, no, no personal against oh. them. It's just that they are, how could you put it? They are like little vanilla ice cream. You just, th- there's not going to be any surprises. You know exactly what you're getting. It's unexciting, but there's lots of it. I don't know what I'm saying now, but do, do you know what I mean? It's just like, oh, here comes the Beverly Sisters, and on they come, and they're going to do the thing. Here they go, here they're doing the thing, they're singing the song. Okay, oh, come on then. They're going to sing the song. Here we go. Right, okay, song's done, that's it. And there's, there's nothing you can say about it at all. It's, it's as exciting as the shipping forecast. There's nothing there. You just slag off the shipping forecast. Well, no, but... The shipping forecast is not meant to be exciting. It's, one, useful, genuinely useful, and two kind of ambient i'm not talking about its purpose and yeah i get the ambience okay fair enough but 
No, I'm saying that the shipping forecast is not somewhere that you would go for frills. And the same as with the Beverly Sisters. You, know, you know what you're getting. You, know, you can put them on at the Royal Variety Performance. They're not going to cause a scene. You're not going to have to ban them from shaking hands with the Queen afterwards or anything like that. They're just there and they're going to do their stuff. Look, if there's anybody out there who likes the Beverly Sisters, just tweet us. What more is there to say apart from the fact that there's a pastiche of them called the Climax Sisters in Confessions of a Pop Performer? And they're much better. It's like if the Beverly Sisters had gone slightly raunchy and also were actually quite foul-mouthed as well backstage. So up next is Charlie Drake. After that is Perry Come. Hey. Do you want to talk about Charlie Drake? Charlie Drake, okay. What What is there to say about Charlie Drake hasn't already been said, particularly on Jim Davidson's podcast? And yeah, he is what he is. He's going to do his stuff and what have you. Somewhere there needs to be... I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't want to be one of those people who just... Right, we like, are 1994 Christmas Night with the Stars right now because no, we've no, been no, no, unpleasant no, no, no. about the Beverly Sisters no, no. and we're being unpleasant about Charlie Drake. No, we're being nice about David Nixon. Now, I listen, saw Charlie Drake in Panto. Have I told this story before? I don't think you've told it on the air, no. Okay, right. Well, actually, you've got two stories to tell, one of which may be true, but I think it's worth telling anyway. So... Charlie Drake in Panto, Bradford Lambra. So Charlie Drake comes out and goes, Hello, my darlings. That was my Charlie Drake impression. <laughs> well, here we are at a Hollywood party. <laughs> there's Damien If you want your Susie. Why, look, there's Malcolm Muggeridge. <laughs> I can't do Malcolm Muggeridge. Damn. I can't do the voice, but I'll give you a quote from Malcolm Muggeridge. As it appeared in one of Charles Brandreth's books. Malcolm Muggeridge said to him directly, to think that you have eaten not cutlets at my table. And that was as close as Malcolm Muggeridge could ever get to being livid. Do that again as Jimmy Durante. <sighs> Hang on, Stanley Baxter, mode on. Right. To, to, to think that, that you have eaten not cutlets at my table. Jimmy Durante was <laughs> <as> American. <laughs> the hell was that? <laughs> That was a that better was, Malcolm Muggeridge than your Malcolm Muggeridge impression. That, that was that was Jimmy Durante on Copycats. Right, I'm not being mean about Charlie Drake, but no, no, you're saying about Panto. Oh, yes, sorry. <laughs> so, right, Panto, Charlie Drake comes on, hello, my darlings, and everybody just sits there and looks at him, and he'd been expecting a round of applause. And he went, that's what I say. I think he got the audience to say it back to him. But you could tell it was just an odd, awkward moment. He was expecting everybody to cheer at Charlie Drake, and it didn't happen. And then we get Perry Como. Hey, he's all right. Who, despite... Perry. What? He's all right, Perry Como. Oh, mind. thank God. I thought you said something else. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you just momentarily turned into George Sweeney there. <laughs> Perry Como, I'm guessing it must be a telly recording. Because it definitely is a clip from an American special. Even in black and white, there seems to be NTSC conversion artifacts. It can't have been played out on videotape. Surely there was no way of... Co- well, in 1958, I think the BBC had only just bought its first Ampex machine, hadn't it? Or had it finished developing Vera? And then, of course, Vera, which was the BBC's own videotape system that never went anywhere. So I have a reason for doing this research because I once saw a discussion about a Thomas the Tank Engine adaptation in 1953, and the comments underneath it were, why did this go out live? What idiot thought that was a good idea? And people going, yeah, well, they had to put it out live. And then somebody, I'm pretty sure the BBC had a tape of this and then wiped it. And me having to explain that the BBC were not videotaping anything in 1953. Telerecording was still experimental. There are telerecordings of things from before 1953, but it was not felt ready for prime time. They abandoned the telerecording of the Quatermass experiment two episodes in because the telerecordings felt to be... It's, ah, never mind. It's spoiling the Christmas atmosphere. I hate to break this to you, Till, but I mean, this is just... The, okay, this is my opinion. It's my considered opinion after a number of years online. I get the impression that there are some, and they're only a minority, there are some people on the internet who don't really care about the facts when it comes to things that they're spouting off about. They're not just on the internet. They're in workplaces as well, talking very loudly. The thing is, you've got to be so careful about this, but there was an invisible tipping point in arguments of that ilk. If I'm the one, or you're the one, or whoever it is who's like coming out with all the, the actual factually correct information, 
there's a point at which somehow you become the villain of the piece. You don't even do it. It's not even like you come in a snotty way. You don't become the um actually guy. So after Perry Como, just as I said, everything's still even even with the Charlie Cha- Charlie Charlie Drake. Oh, the Charlie, Charlie Chase would have been so much better. If yes, only. definitely. <laughs> David Nixon, a sixteen mil projector, and a big stack of Hal Roach shorts. That's a Christmas night. Doesn't even need to be on TV. It's just really a question of: Do you invite David Nixon over, or if you're really lucky, does David Nixon invite you over to his house? And you can all sing carols around his Mellotron. <laughs> anyway, up until now, even with Charlie Drake, it still felt rather American. And then Ted Ray, and that's the moment it all becomes British. Uh, your favourite TV channel, Talking Pictures, that's the one that's been showing Tell Me Another, yes? Yes. As we speak, as this is going out, I believe they're just about to be showing, I think, the first series of that for the first time. They're going to be going out over Christmas as well. So well, You fixed me up with the first series. Oh, breaking news, because this is not an exclusive, but people might not be aware of these two facts. If you've got a free sat box, then you're going to find Talking Pictures on it soon, because they're going to be on the free sat EPG. Also, the drama channel that we've mentioned on this podcast before, which is available on Freeview and on Sky and Cable, and they've got like a little two-hour block where they show like free sitcoms a day, around about one o'clock and six o'clock and so on, that's going to be on Freeview as well. So there's a double Christmas present from the world of vintage variety. Well, hey. So tell me another is performers, actors, comedians, singers telling witty stories about their experience on the circuit. One of these people is Ted Ray and he's great. I really need to find out more about Ted Ray. We watched Ted Ray in Frost on Sunday, wasn't it, with Kenneth Williams? Yes. The, the, yeah. the strike hit 68 first weekend and what have you when we were reviewing that. And yeah, of course, I sort of first got introduced to Ted Ray via Granada Plus repeats of Joker's Wild, because he was a team captain on that in the early days. So it all gets really British when Ted Ray and Kenneth Connor come on. It's interesting, Ted Ray's the headline comedian, but Kenneth Connor gets most of the jokes. And it works. It just works as a dynamic. It's a bit like, he's not quite like Kenneth Horn. You know, people say Kenneth Horn was like a maypole and all the funny people danced around him. But he's much more reactive than active. He's able to deliver his straight man lines in an amusing fashion. He's got funny blood, so he doesn't necessarily need the jokes. Now, you had an interesting observation about historical perspective on this sketch. Yeah, well, I just happened to pick up on the fact that it was all about visiting Doctor and the idea that the GPs have been having their Christmas booze up on the same day and so on. After a while, I twigged, this is only 10 years into the National Health Service. And as you pointed out, of course, the you know, idea of doctor's visits obviously predates the NHS, but it's still relatively recent. I mean, the NHS was as recent during this as, say, working tax credits are now, which just, and I don't know why, it's really easy to fall into that trap of saying, oh, bloody hell, 20 years, I can't believe it, and so on. But sometimes it's nice to just get a little bit of historical context when you're looking back at these things. I mean, this is even a full 10 months, I think, before Raymond Baxter delivers that famous line from, I think, Bill Ricky, the weekly Friday night rock and roll sessions. So there's not any of that going on here, is there? There's, there's none of that loudness or noiseness or any of that. It's crudity. Speaking of crudity, I mean, how do you feel about the general coarsening of discourse in culture? Do you think there are too many jokes about sex and drugs in the world? Yes. Do you know what they should be replaced with? Jokes about fluoroscopes. <laughs> I think that was when the world started to go wrong, when people stopped making jokes about fluoroscopes in shoe shops. <laughs> I'm trying to remember if I actually ever genuinely saw a fluoroscope or if it's a false memory and I'm just misremembering the foot measuring machine. No, I don't think I am old enough to remember fluoroscopes. You, you know what they are, Yes. Yes. Yeah, well, you know what they are, but pretend you don't, and then we can explain it to the people who don't know what they are, but they don't feel bad because you're ignorant too. I ain't got a clue what you're on about. What's a fluoroscope? Why, shoe shops used to have a kind of x-ray machine, and you could see how the shoe fit, and you could also see your foot inside the shoe, and maybe some of the bones. I'm more familiar with them from a comic story about a haunted fluoroscope where the x-rayed feet kind of escape. And Ted Ray makes a joke about an x-ray machine, about, we're not getting a new pair of shoes, are we? 
And people left because people got that kind of thing in 1958. This was before dumbing down. So when Paul Daniels did rise to fame and have his show, he would often say, I don't use camera tricks. I have reason to believe that David Nixon might be part of this. (laughs) This isn't really an example of him passing off a camera trick as magic, but I think David Nixon was very interested in what could be done with camera trickery. So this is an example, but I think there are times when he did achieve a magical effect through camera tricks, which isn't really any more dishonest than any other kind of magical mechanism. A magician is a showman, and some of the things that magicians do are not even tricks. It's just well-thought-out showmanship. And for David Nixon, that was the new showmanship. Television was still, even in the 50s and into the 60s, novel, still something to be played with. And this is him doing a bit of... Well, actually, no, there's a bit of legit magic blended with the camera trickery. So all it is is the fairy on the Christmas tree becomes an actual person who dances. Doesn't quite come off, but then there's this bit about her passing a cigarette to him. So at some point he's had to have hidden the cigarette to suddenly pluck it from the air and pluck it so well that it looks like the thing she was passing to him. But it's... I I know, I hesitate to use the word, but it's probably the most dated part of the show in terms of staging. I don't think that there is a right a wrong answer to this because I could understand where Paul Daniels would have been coming from in the early part of his television career where he's slightly overlapping David Nixon. But David Nixon, as well as being an immensely talented magician, he's also a magician of the television era in the same way as we'll talk about in a moment. Benny Hill was using the tricks of television as the first sort of holy TV comedian. He was using techniques like split screen and so on. David Nixon is using the techniques that are available to him, and he's using them very well, and presumably he's at the forefront of this. Then after about sort of 15, 20 years, people have got used to, and then more than used to, that kind of thing. And I gave you the example when we are watching this, that it's what puts me off a lot of action films. I'm not really into action films anyway, but it puts me off a lot of action films these days because I don't believe one single instance of anything that I'm seeing. I don't believe any of it. And I'm not all that impressed with the processing power of the technology that the film studios can use to make these films. I'm not particularly impressed with what software they've got. I mean, I can certainly appreciate the art of the person who is able to use the software and the hardware to pull off these incredible visual techniques. But nonetheless, you do occasionally now hear of films being made and they say there's no CGI in this. And that's what Paul Daniels would have been doing at the same time. He's saying, right, okay, you're used to television trickery by now. So here I am going back to basics. And my sort of guaranteed seal is that there'll be no television trickery in my shows. And now we're going to talk about Tony Hancock. Right. Now, I thought this was a bit odd, the fact that your man, Tony Hancock, having been in the television version of Hancock's Half Hour for a good couple of years by this point, was effectively doing... A regular skit. It was like a, well, a Rob This Rank is a neat little solution, skit. really. You were saying earlier that by later years, television sitcoms have Christmas specials anyway. And it's not a problem in 1958, but it's a neat solution to a problem that doesn't already exist, which is have something recognizable in its humor, but different in its setup. And actually, this is all still supposed to be happening in Railway Cutting's East Cheam. But it's not Hancock at home. It's Hancock is a budgie, is being shown to a vicar by an old lady. And so it's just the whole thing of, hello, hello, are you a pretty boy? And him just doing his usual, oh, God, there she goes again. Sour attitude. So there's not much to say about the Hancock sketch, but it works. I thought it was very funny doing his usual stick in a different realm. No Sid James, unfortunately, which was And I'm guessing that it must be done split stage somehow. Because he has to be on a separate stage that's supposed to be the budgie cage with him in it. And then we have the living room with the old lady and the priest and a budgie cage that maybe has a stuffed bird or an actual bird in it. But there's a bit where she delivers a line and there's a laugh still hanging in the air from Hancock's previous gag. And she delivers it again. So she's riding the audience laughter. So they're both there at the same time. It's not a filmed insert or it wouldn't be video. It's not filmed insert. So... It's a slick piece of TV, this whole thing, for 1958. It is, yeah. I mean, it looks big budget, and it's exactly the kind of thing that the BBC should be doing at Christmas time. 
but presumably by this point even, is what people have come to expect from the BBC you know, on Christmas night. Billy Cotton. I don't mind about Billy Cotton. I have nothing of interest to say about Billy Cotton. He is what he is. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Welcome I to kind of want to get on to... We've talked a heck of a lot about 1958, so we getting have, on to yeah. the last bit, Dixon of Doc Green. Have I missed anything out? Was Jimmy Edwards in this? Oh, yeah, Wacko. Oh, Wacko. Yes. Yes, okay, yes, yes. I have no notes for Wacko, so there you Wacko go. Wacko was good fun. I'd like to see more Wacko. And I really enjoyed the glums when we saw it on Bruce's Big Night. I'd like to see more of it. Ever-decreasing circles, Link. Arthur Howard in Wacko and in the sketch we watched. And he was Mr. Lazenby in Ever-decreasing circles. And his his brother was in Gone with the Wind. Dixon of Doc Green. Right. Last segment of Christmas Night with the Stars is Dixon of Doc Green. And that interested me because it's a segment from a drama. And they've been watching Christmas Night with the Stars. <laughs> Don't they turn off the TV at the beginning? They're actually turning off the TV exactly the point where Dixon of Doc Green comes on. Yes, which is good because it would have been very distracting. <laughs> so it's just a working class family in London and how they celebrate their Christmas. Well, Dixon of Doc Green is interesting when you talk about it with people who don't know all that much about television. Because there's that impression that, well, yes, it's 1950s, it's quite patrician, maybe it's patronising in its view of the working class, it's father knows best, all's right with the world, and then, if you like being the um actually guy <laughs> and spoiling the conversation the thing to point out is it was written by ted willis who was a former communist don't know if he was still a communist when he wrote dixon of doc green but he was definitely a great big lefty and he ended up being a baron he was given a baronetcy i think by harold wilson he was made a baron round about the time he's creating sergeant cork so a communist who ended up in the house of lords wrote Dixon of Doc Green. And once you look at that, you can start to see something in Dixon of Doc Green that it's like this is the policeman as working man who deserves respect because he is a hardworking man. He is part of holding society together and society should be important if you are a socialist. So yes, there is that way of Britain reflected back at itself and the way it likes to think about itself rather than the way it is. But it's not a piece of hard right propaganda by any means. But it's interesting that we end with a segment of a drama. I think there should have been more of that. There should have been more of that on ITV, having spoken about Hancock as a butchie. All-star comedy, all-star television carnival. Have a segment with Christmas with Budgie. <laughs> Callan. Well, uh, yeah, I just got the Callan This Man Alone DVD from Network. And, of course, that does have Callan Meets Father, Dear Father in pretty good quality. <laughs> Christmas Comedy Carnival. Every comedy sketch should have crossed off with a drama made by the same company. Do you know what they should have done with Callan? There should have been an Australian spin-off version. With Lonely. No, because Lonely could... He, he would be a spin-off of his own right. But what I'm saying is, you know, like, in the same way as, you know, Jack Smithhurst's gone out and Patrick Cargill's gone out and the Doctors have gone out and, uh, to Australia and carried on. Yeah, Edward Woodward relocates to Australia to continue his... How about Callan relocates to America and helps solve problems for people like a one-man air team? We have at some point said we, we might look at the equaliser for Jeff Cakes of Proust, so... I would like it if the equaliser was maybe a little bit more Callan-like, in that you get the usual setup, so that slightly air team. Oh, my grandfather, he runs a convenience store and there are bad guys in the neighbourhood and they're threatening for protection money. And it's like, leave it with me. And then he comes back, yep, killed them all. <laughs> what? You gunned them down. So there's my invoice for the bullets. <laughs> so, Christmas Night with the Stars, 1964. A point of interest that it exists in two distinct edits. We were watching the 1991 version, yes? Yes, so this went out as part of a day-long sequence called A Perfect Christmas on BBC Two, which some people will remember went out on the 21st of December, and just basically everything was in it, wasn't it? It was every little sort of Christmas trait that you would expect. There was Markham Wise, and there was Top of the Pops, and bits and pieces. I think there was probably... Because when we got our three surviving editions in, and 1958 is 80 minutes, and 1972 is also 80 minutes. And we looked at this. This is only an hour. What a swizz. 
It turns out in 1964, this was 90 minutes. There are two reasons we think this was edited. One, timing. Obviously, somebody decided it was easier to schedule an hour-long variety show than a 90-minute variety show. And number two, the black and white minstrels turn up twice in this thing. (laughs) It would have been quite difficult for the editors in 1991 if the black and white minstrels had turned up in every sequence as a sort of running gag. You know, they just interrupt the goings-on in marriage lines and the like of that and so Fortunately, because apparently to achieve this clean edit, to achieve this new edit, the running order was changed. I have the original running order and some notes from the person who compiled this running order for us. I don't know if it's because they saw a copy or if the paperwork they looked at was that detailed, but got a few ideas. So we've spent too much time in 1958, so... Go! <laughs> Crack on, come on. First of all, we had... This was cut from 1991, and I think this is actually because there is a piece of it missing within the original 64 copy, which causes a bit of a problem as far as editing is concerned. We had Fora Hard and Freddie Frinton in Meet the Wife. As mentioned by the Beatles. Ah! Well, the first thing to say in general about this is this is a very confident BBC that produced this. I mean, the first shot of the opening titles is Television Centre. We have this huge hub of entertainment, drama, everything. This is the home of British television. Oh, yes, ITV exists, but this is the BBC. This is the grand organ of media. It's funny the way that things have worked out. I mean, it's not by design. It's really just by accident. But, I mean, how long had TV Centre been open by this point? Was it four years, I think? And when did it? close officially was it 2012 2013 i don't like to think about it well i know so yeah so for all those years you had bbc tv center and you had those titles being used and everything from you know spike milligan the goodies and kenny everett and wogan and what have you and meanwhile itv didn't really have a sort of centralized hub because you'd see kent house you'd see say teddington or Gradland studios but there was no central one place where it's all the itv stuff is happening and what have you and of course now we've got to the point where the bbc's scrabbling around looking for you know corners and elstree and what have you to put on their stuff and meanwhile shows on itv particularly over the last two or three years have made such a big deal about coming from as they're now called the london studios and they feature in the title sequence for ant and deck and what have you and that's now become the focal point this is like this is where television lives this is it's one significant little landmark in the uk meh our host is jack warner and the number of times he mentions this show started this year he mentions the tv shows he's showing clips of he's not just bringing you celebrities he's bringing you sections of bbc television shows that's something he underlines. It's something I might complain about now, the, the sense that the BBC goes, we are the BBC and this is our brand. Let's talk about ourselves. I guess there's a little bit of that here. The sense of an extended advert for BBC television. I, I can't stay mad at Jack Warner, that's the thing. Well, exactly. If Jack Warner was fronting the I Love iPlayer advert, I'd be just now, you could dislike them. If Jack Warner was the voice of Sprout Boy, it'd make a damn sight better, wouldn't it? I tried watching Sprout Boy and then it was like, a sprout who had love to give. <laughs> That's it. Turned off. Sorry. <laughs> emotions. Idents should not have emotions. Idents should be on a turntable. In our 1991 edit, the first thing we see is Billy Cotton, which is the first thing the 1964 people saw. And then we go straight to Dick Emery. Dick Emery in 1964 is pretty much the same as the Dick Emery I remembered from later years. Some of the characters are sort of like in prototype mode. Like Yeah, Mandy, Mandy looks different. Example. Yes. I mean, Dick Emery only started on BBC the year before. So this was like in the real early days of this format. But even back then, you, you had the interviewer format, which was then used throughout the BBC years and turns up in his shows in Australia and what have you. So that device was used for... I think Dick years. suffers from comparison with someone we're going to come to later. So that's all. And one of the things that caught my interest in the opening titles was Top of the Pops. Hey, how are you going to represent Top of the Pops? Are you just going to show a recording of an act? Are we actually going to have some DJs? Their solution could be described as elegant, but we're back to personal prejudice. Well, no, I mean, I'm not personally prejudiced against the Baron Knights. Because, hey, Twice Nightly, was that on Boxy? Was that on Christmas Day one year? No, it was Christmas Eve, wasn't it? Christmas, Christmas Eve, Eve was it? Oh, okay. Well... 
cussed him at the Baron Knights because of Twice Nightly. However, I think had I been a hip swinging teen of 1964 and I see Top of the Pops and then they present you with the Baron Knights, I'd have felt cheated. Because <laughs> I was intrigued by this because I was thinking, okay, Top of the Pops only just started this year. So it's just about, it's about a week away from its first anniversary. And I'm thinking, you know, Christmas Night with the Stars, it's very sort of family oriented and it's not going to do anything which is going to sort of, you know, frighten anybody off or anything like that. So it's, it's not necessarily going to be full on Top of the Pops with all those rowdy, long haired, 60s, reefer smoking popsters, is it? I mean, surely not. And of course it wasn't at all. <laughs> I guess the reason you have the Baron Knights, though, is they do medleys, so they represent a lot of the hits of 1964. The, the thing I don't like about that thing from the Baron Knights is it's not really a satire on pop music, it's just pop songs with silly lyrics. They don't take a Beatles song and make fun of the Beatles through it, it's just the Beatles singing about eating a turkey. They should have brought them back to do this in 1994. The bang up to date. Imagine the Baron Knights doing the pastiche of pulp. Baron Knights are still going, aren't they? And I'm imagining that their set is probably full of Taylor Swift jokes. <laughs> there might be a reference to iPods in there. Maybe they do a whole routine where they dress up as baby metal. No, you've lost me. Okay, I showed you that video of baby metal. It's like three Japanese 12-year-old girls in a metal band <laughs> singing about chocolate. No, I was getting confused with Pink Lady and Jeff. <laughs> After that, Andy Stewart, I hand it over to you. Oh. At one point, I somehow got the feeling that Andy Stewart had a mixed reputation in Scotland, but you say he's fine. It was the TV show White Heather Club that people didn't really care for as a representation of a proud people. This is something which is easy to look at this through the prism of 2015 and a lot of you know talking head comedians on BBC Scotland clip shows saying, oh, look at that, Hooster Chooster nonsense and so on but yeah people actually at the time some people objected to that there's a famous clip from a precursor to points of view a program called talkback i think it was hosted by david coleman and the producer of the white hell club was getting stick from you know some scots viewers saying this is a stereotypical portrayal of the scots and, and this is not really how we sh should be seen throughout the uk now Andy Stewart himself, I've never heard anybody say a bad word about Andy Stewart, but of course he, he's a sort of like the front man for this. He represents the era and this, this particular style. And you often hear jokes about Andy Stewart in sitcoms when the 60s, 70s are talking about seeing in the new year with Andy Stewart and so on. I suppose he's sort of fall guy for, for anything. Is it just you Lowland snobs being mean to Highlanders? Is that no, it? I, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think so because... It's probably more likely that the Highlanders are the ones who are going to get upset about it because us Lowlanders can say, well, that's nothing to do with us, you know, because that's got as much relevance as, say, if I was to say to yourself, have you seen what that bloody Cornish independent outfit is doing, you know, in the name of England? And you'd be like, what the hell is this going to do with me? But, you know, so we always say, you know, oh, yeah, that's them up there. If they're up there in Grampian land, you know, presumably they're going to want to say, look, there's more to us than just all this... How's your father business? More cosmopolitan ITV company. Grampian was. Grampian was. That's yeah, exactly. So, so I presume yeah, people were saying you know BBC, you should be doing what Grampian's doing, bringing this all full circle. Of course, Grampian had a series in I think nineteen seventy eight called The Entertainers, which I think was networked, and one of the acts that they had on it was the Baron Knights. And guess what they were doing? They were doing a top forty routine, and didn't they do an entire bloody top forty? Yes, they did, and. <laughs> They did a joke about Queen that didn't work. It's just like, oh, number 37, it's Queen, and hi, sweetie. Yeah, right, so, okay, fine. There's a certain sexual freedom about the band Queen. That's not really an observation that you've turned into anything. So, okay, so Andy Stewart, he's fine, and he's up there in Eust, I think you pronounce it. I should know, but I don't. But anyway, he's up there in Oyster or whatever the hell it's called. It's like the far-flungest place in the whole of... The it's United not so Kingdom much Northern Africa Scotland as Southern Norway. Exactly, yeah. So there, really, there should have been a link between Grampian broadcasting out of Eust and Channel Television in Alderney. And he was and entertaining the troops who were about to take part in the disastrous British invasion of Norway. <laughs> That was the impression I got. It looked like, why are all those guys up there? I'm just expecting he was going to turn to the camera and say, 
And this time next Christmas, the Union Jack will be flying over Oslo. <laughs> Mind you, if we'd done that, we could have had more Eurovision Song Contests. So next up is Huge and I, as hey. Sophia Loren referred to it. No, she, she, she gave an interview and she said that while she was in Britain, she liked to sit up in bed in her hotel room and watch Huge and I. I mentioned this in Lollipop Loves Mr. Mole. Okay, so you've got the two of them, and oh, we should explain it's Hugh Lloyd and Terry Scott. And yeah, it was, it was quite good fun. What's now, the I, setup then? They're just a couple uh, of guys who. Who was the guy that we were trying to recognise for it? The Are they flatmates? Jack Haig. Oh, yes, of course. And this has got the vicar arriving, hasn't it? Yes, right at the end. It was just somebody's family came around for Christmas and embarrassing things happen when family turns up. It was like a 1964 version of Vicious. See, <laughs> so what's the setup? Why do Hugh Lloyd and Terry Scott live together? This is from a time when the word bromance hadn't been coined, thank God. Can you imagine Jack Warner's introduction using the word bromance? Probably like wince, like he'd just bitten into a lemon as he said it. Right, here we go. So apparently Jack Haig, by the way, he was a regular between series two and five, both you and I. But according from Wikipedia here, Terry Scott is a youngish bachelor who wants to achieve wealth without putting in any hard work. The scheming Terry lives with his mother at 33 Lobelia Avenue in Tooting. They have a simple and easily led lodger, Hugh Lloyd, who works at a local aircraft factory. The two often try and make money through one of Scott's schemes. However, I should also point out (laughs) there was a sequel called Hugh and I Spy. Yes, I think there's a Hugh and I DVD, but it misses off the surviving episodes of Hugh and I Spy, which has upset some people, understandably. Viewers in 1964 were then treated to the black and white minstrels. Viewers in 1991 were then treated to the likely lads. And here's a little plug. BBC Two, that's a thing. BBC Two, be sure to go out and get your 625 standard television in your new aerial BBC Two. Watch BBC Two. Jack Warner says that, oh, this isn't a show that's been running and running. This is a new show. In fact, it had only been on air for two weeks. It feels like, one, the BBC could already tell that the likely that was probably going to be a long runner. It was going to get its place in the national consciousness and two, BBC Two, BBC Two, there's a second BBC channel. Did we mention that there is a two BBC Two? Go out and get a new TV. And yeah, when Michael Parkinson did Christmas Night with the Stars in 2003, did they dedicate a whole 20 minutes of it to BBC Three? No. It's, it's an amusing little sketch. Is, is it on YouTube? Actually, no, this is on the DVD, isn't it? I think this is on the Likely Lights DVD. Well, actually, all of what we're talking about just now, the whole of 1964-1991 edit is on YouTube. Right. But the Likely Leds bit is on the DVD, I believe. So that would explain why it was in my mind that it was probably more seen than any of the other bits. And we've already talked about the Likely Leds in a full-blown sitcom club. So after that, 1964 gets Roy Castle. 1991 gets no Roy Castle. And instead, we have more Billy Cotton, followed by Betty Hill. Now, only the other day, I had been unenthusiastic to an American about Benny Hill when they'd said Benny Hill was the only British comedian they'd heard of. If ever I meet an American who says, oh, I love Ted Ray, then then my (laughs) friend for life. And I say, I said, well, when I was growing up, Benny Hill had kind of become a marginal figure. He might have been talked about in terms of, oh, the PC Brigade, but I think that was even more after he was cancelled. Benny Hill was just kind of there. Benny Hill was comedy for granddads. I'm going to shock you with regard to Benny Hill. When you say about, he was quite often targeted by the PC Brigade, and yes, he was. And, and also well, he, I, th- I think he was more complained about, but there is no PC Brigade. If there was a join because he'd probably get a badge. If it's a brigade, you have a badge, <laughs> probably even a unit, maybe a helmet. No. It's just uh, if they said the PC club, you wouldn't be bothered, would you? Okay, Benny Hill. No, if you've never read Mark Lewinson's really, really good biography of Benny Hill called Funny Peculiar, do so. There's a really interesting little factoid, Steve Wright fans, in there, which is that the first significant attack, I suppose you would say, on Benny Hill came as early as 1981, and it came from The Sun, believe it or not. So there you go, they actually had a piece, It was, I think it was an uh, editorial piece, and it said, Benny, you're, you're too filthy for 
peak time ITV, clean up your act. Amazing. But you'd never think that because you've, you know, obviously it's, it's always Ben Elton that spoke about it in this sort of mid-1980s, late-1980s and so on. But no, apparently it was as early as that that some people were sort of mentioning uh, how sort of crude his, his shows have become. But this was a revelation because... Absolutely, that was the word universe. I was going to use. Because he's essentially doing a takeoff of World in Action. It's all about juvenile delinquency. It's not just the subject matter. It's not just the fact that it looks perfect. It's all shot 60mm film location, like one of those things would be. But his range of character seems to be a bit broader. Particularly the guy with the thick glasses and the, the false teeth. <laughs> he runs up the escalators the wrong way. <laughs> he, he wasn't playing any recognisable parts either. It would have been perhaps more tempting to do that on a show like this, perhaps do like a jukebox jury uh, skit like he did on his own show. It not only it was a revelation as far as Ben Hill was concerned, but also it felt nicely out of place for Christmas Night with the Stars. Yeah, because it's a bleak setup. This is about a young man with no prospects who turns to violence and things like that. It looks like a world in action, and it's just filled with silliness. And so it's not just a matter that, oh, you know, Benny Hill's making jokes about drugs. I did like the stupid pun of, you know, smoke addict, smoked addict. <laughs> I'm very easily pleased. But it just, it looked right and it was beautifully performed. And we shall investigate more Benny Hill when he was cutting edge. Not a great deal of Benny Hill's BBC Works advice, but there was enough that a compilation video came out, I think, in the States about maybe mm. 10 years Benny ago. Benny Hill on the BBC, I think. Yeah. I might be able to lay my hands on a copy. He should have gone to London Weekend, shouldn't he? Instead of Thames. What about Granada? I'm just thinking with London Weekend, like the Stanley Baxter thing, they could have thrown the resources at him to play every part in a sketch to keep up to date with his parodies of the medium. And then there's Marriage Lines. Marriage Lines actually comes earlier in the original 64 lineup, but Marriage Lines is next in the 1991 edit. I can't think of much to say about that. It's kind of what you think of as a classical BBC middle-class sitcom. Cozy, it's, it's inoffensive. Uh, what we're saying about Benny Hill, it's quite an eye-opener. This is exactly the kind of thing you'd expect in Christmas Night. Yeah, it's just a nice little, what is it, 10-minute little sequence and what have you. Because strangely enough, Series 1 and 3 of Marriage Lines survives. Series 2 doesn't. But I suspect if we were to watch all of Series 1 and 3, I don't know there'd be a great deal to say about it at the end of it. Because we're always... There's definitely not much to say about 10 minutes. I, I was thinking we couldn't really judge the show by these 10 minutes. Are you thinking we couldn't really judge the show by the show? No, I don't. I'm not saying that we can judge the show, but... It's more that we are very keen not to fall into the trap of just regurgitating things that happen in an episode of a sitcom when we talk about it. We, we like to have you know something that we can get our teeth into as far as its background or context or whatever it may be. And I suspect in this, you know, you probably enjoy the shows, but I don't know there'd be a great deal to talk about as far as textual analysis was concerned. Listen to me sounding like I'm in the Times Literary Supplement. And then in 1991, we have half of Kathy Kirby. <laughs> <laughs> Which she sings, have yourself a merry little Christmas, and then we have a quick fade, and Jack Warner goes, ah, what appropriate sentiments, and Jack Warner says goodbye. In 1964, Kathy Kirby was between Meet the Wife and Dick Emery, went from have yourself a merry little Christmas into singing Silent Night. So what do we get at the end of 1964, if not Kathy Kirby? Why, it's more black and white minstrels. <laughs> and my note here says, singing patriotic songs mainly Scottish. Are we sure there wasn't some dust-up between Britain and Norway going on? Because we, then we come out of that with Jack Warner going, ah, oh, what appropriate sentiments. <laughs> they didn't end on a Christmas song, if this is to be believed. This is obviously an area of Wilson's early foreign policy that I've overlooked. So it's 1972. My impression going into this was 1958 would be primitive, but charming. 1964 would be interesting and more confident, and 1972 would be Imperial Phase, BBC One, Charm, Variety, and ah, oh, we have everything. That mood was actually 1964. And 1972 suffers from its hosts, because the hosts are the two Ronnies, doing a great job, doing desk pieces, linking everything from the two Ronnies set, but if you just got the two Ronnies, 
linking sketches, it just feels like a big addition of the two Ronnies. They're introducing a variety of people, but there's not quite that sense that this is a big, spectacular variety show just being put on for you on Christmas Day. It just feels like the two Ronnies have got people to help. And so it feels reduced. It would be interesting, we can't see it, of course, because it doesn't exist in the archives. It would be interesting to see Mocker and Wise as hosts from 1968 and see how they work as hosts in comparison. But also you'd think, given the year in question, the BBC's 50th, and the fact that they've been making a big deal about that all year, you would think, wouldn't you, that this was going to be a two-hour-plus extravaganza. And, I mean, who would you have to host it? Who would be your BBC man in 1972? Who's your face of BBC? It's too early for Terry Wogan. Uh, he's at ATV at this time. Maybe Michael Parkinson? Maybe Michael Aspel, perhaps? Richard Baker. Richard Baker's Night with Stars. <laughs> yes. Two Ronnies are great as ever, but I think there's a little bit too much of them in this show. You know, David Nixon does one little piece in 58. Jack Warner is your compare in 64, whereas the two Ronnies are doing their desk pieces and their sketches, and Ronnie Corbett's doing his one-man joke, and he's doing a little bit with Scylla Black and so on. And so, yeah, you've got an awful lot of two Ronnies in there. So it, it sort of feels like a half two Ronnies episode with a lot of other bits and pieces then thrown into the mix. Now, big chunks of this are available on DVD. Yes, there's a DVD which claims to be the complete two Ronnies Christmas specials, and it's far from it. But it does have a lot of 70s. It's pretty much got all the two Ronnies material from Christmas Night with the Star 72 and a couple of other bits and pieces as well. That's out and about there. I think it's only about five or so. On. And the goodies portable five-minute Christmas, is that on one of the goodies DVDs? I'm not sure about that, but it wouldn't surprise me. You didn't like that? I just thought it went on a bit. <laughs> I think part of the problem is when you get those extended goodies visual sequences, they're usually part of an episode of the goodies that's built. And this just smacks into you straight out of Lulu, straight into the goodies. There's no build. So you're coming in a bit cold and you don't really have time to warm up. Actually, you know, this is going to sound ridiculous, but the first time I ever saw the sketch, which was years ago, I sort of had a feeling this might drag. And ironically, it's because of the very shtick of the sketch itself. They turn up and they're going to present all of Christmas in five minutes. The intention is to cram all of Christmas, all three days, into five minutes. But at the same time, I'm thinking, this sketch is going to last for five minutes. <clears throat> Which, five minutes is like, you know, that's quite lengthy for one sequence. And yeah, yeah. Well, and then just... we get the liver birds. Hey, you didn't, you didn't much care well, My problem with this is it was the sitcom cliche. Mike Scott, if you're listening, I know you have a rule that every sitcom at some point will have an episode called A Quiet Night In. (laughs) If this Live of Birds had an individual segment title, it would be A Quiet Night In. And what happens in a sitcom when they have A Quiet Night In? It's nice having A Quiet Night In. Yes. Oh, no. Everybody's turned up. Oh, they're all making a noise. (laughs) Meh. Do you know what? I didn't pick up on this, obviously, when I saw it. I'm looking at this retrospectively now. I'm going to jump ahead a couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about... A Christmas Carol in a couple of weeks' time. And one of the versions that we saw just recently, we saw this after we saw Christmas Night with the Stars 72. You've got Bob Cratchit saying to Tiny Tim, I've got the whole day off tomorrow. We'll be together, the whole family will be together all day long. In this, you had the live board saying, Oh, bloody hell, I had to spend all bloody day with the family yesterday. Oh, what a chore. I can't stand. Christmas Day, the family, and so on. And I'm thinking, why can't you be a bit more like Tiny Tim? Just show some gratitude. <laughs> you had the whole day off, for goodness sake. After that, we get the young generation dancing around, being with, youthful. Uh, music's own Lulu? No, this is their own bit. But we've missed out Lulu in that case. Yes, yes, we missed out Lulu because there's not that much to say and there's not that much time left. We're just going to talk for the sake of it. You can't just miss out sections, though. After that, Mike Yarwood, shut up, Mike Yarwood, doing a not very good Larry Grayson impression. What's going on? Mike Yarwood is the Mike Yarwood of impressions. But of course, it's interesting that he does Larry Grayson at all. 1972, Larry Grayson is a new thing. Indeed, well, that was his big breakout year, wasn't it? Because he was on Saturday Variety on ATV. 
And so this is the first year that he's really come to prominence on television. So I guess it makes perfect sense that he would be in Mike Albert's repertoire. And there are a lot of impressions here that even I just barely understood. I think there was one impression and neither of us had a clue who it was meant to be. (laughs) Well, some of them were helped by announcements such as, Hello, I'm Gerald Navarro. (laughs) He had the moustache. We didn't need His Malcolm Muggeridge is better than mine, I'll give him that. One quaint little thing about this is he's doing this this shtick about how he's all the guests at a party, himself and Adrian Poster. And then right at the end of the sketch, after it's finished and the camera pulls out, there's like, oh, there are people there. Where yes! do you come from? <laughs> that was disconcerting. <laughs> Up next is Ronnie C doing a chair routine, then Scylla, then Ronnie Barker doing the off-license quickie that had the same punchline as an off-license quickie that Stanley Baxter did sometime in his career. Dad's Army, which I don't know if it's on the two Ronnie's DVD, but I think it is on the Dad's Army DVD, that segment. And who else was in the Dad's Army section? The film snob from Man About the House. Yes, he was playing the sound engineer. It's the Dad's Army where I think that's Clippers turned up on TV as well. It's the one where they're doing a Christmas message over the radio, and they're having to pretend to be themselves. Then the Milkman sketch with the two Ronnies, and then Scylla Black and the Choir of St. Andrew's something. Then a round of desk jokes and the end. We haven't done 72 justice, have we? No, 1972 didn't do itself justice. It just got lost in a blur of Ronnies. It didn't feel like a super spectacular. So my vote goes to 1964 for the most confident and the most spectacular and the one that really says, this is the BBC at Christmas. Now, this is the feeling of budget cuts hanging over it, really. I'm, I'm going to say that I think All-Star Comedy Carnival this year was, was better in 72, going out opposite this, of course, to, to some extent. Well, that's the one with Hauntological on the buses. It is indeed. And also well, it's gets... 16 millimeter film, and I swear there's a bit of a fisheye lens effect <laughs> that's not intentional. I think they've used a nice wide-angle lens to shoot Blakey's office, and then when it pans round, everything seems to sort of bend away, and it ends with them chasing a goose a little bit too slowly <laughs> so that they don't catch it. So there's kind of like... It's very dreamlike. Oh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Also, guess who else turns up in that one? It's David Nixon. Yeah, oh, fantastic. So there you go. David Nixon was the host of the first Christmas Night with the Stars, and he was on the other side during the last one. How about that then? So that's us for Christmas Night with the Stars. And I'd like to see a proper release for these. Though admittedly, you'd have to put a great big sticker on the front of 1964 if you're going to do it properly. Let's see, see, you know, restored and vid-fired, with a big sticker on the front saying, warning, contains black and white minstrels. Put both edits on. Put both edits. So it's like, right, are you going to watch this for a bit of fun and laughter? More fun and laughter than you get with Portland Bill? Or are you going to watch this from historical perspective? See, when you said slap a big sticker, I thought you just meant in the bits where the minstrels were on, you just slap a big sticker on the screen and say, you can't watch this. Just the big leave red it. X. <laughs> I think we can confidently say that there's absolutely zero possibility of this turning up on BBC Store. Well, the, but the, uh, the, the BBC, you see BBC Store, vid firing wouldn't do it any good. When downloads and streaming finally get the video look, then I will stop clinging to physical media quite so tightly, even though I'll still obviously always be a collector. Always! I'll throw you a bone at this time of year. It is actually happening. If you watch HD video... Now, I've heard about it on iPlayer, and I've heard it doesn't look quite right, though. It doesn't look quite right, because... Well, there you go! Because what you've got is you've got that weird sort of phony interlace business where everything looks to be moving too quickly. So it's like 50 frames progressive rather than interlaced. But it's better. It's an improvement. It's in the right direction. I want it all, and I want it now. Oh, hello, sweetie. Baron Knight's joke. So if you're listening to this on the day it came out, you've already got your Christmas radio times, obviously. And when the Christmas radio time starts, that's when Christmas starts, as we all know. So next week, keeping with the sort of double issue idea, we have a double podcast spectacular. Now, they're coming out earlier this week because, of course, Christmas Day is on a Friday. 
So Wednesday the 23rd, the sitcom club, big old Christmas bonanza shindig is going to be happening and it's going to be great and there's going to be lots of guests on it and it's going to be feature length. It's going to be even longer than this one. We'll let you discover what it's about at the time when you download it. Sitcom Club Christmas Party, Wednesday 24th of December. And then Christmas Eve, we will have the Jaffa Cakes for Proust Christmas special. And that's going to be looking at three different adaptations, some of them more faithful than others, of A Christmas Carol. We might also mention some advertisements in the process. So that's our big Christmas double bonanza coming up next week. In the meantime, if you've got anything at all for us, we're still on the old Twitter handle for now. We'll reveal a new one next week. So we're on at the Sitcom Club on Twitter, the Sitcom Club on Facebook, sitcomclub.com on the internet, and podnose.com as well. In the meantime, from Mr. Tiltariser. Merry Christmas. This is Gary saying thank you very much indeed for listening to Jaffa Cakes for Proust. <laughs>